0: It's an honor to be with you all again this evening. I'll just say at the beginning here, lest I fail to say it later, um, this week was short, but I have enjoyed uh, being with you here, even though it felt short. And uh, I really appreciate you folks down here. Uh, I say down here just because I live north, and uh, I just want to bless you all as you all continue to serve the Lord and uh, live your Christian lives together as a body of believers. Well, I'm not going to try to speak three times as fast. And uh, I've taught long enough to know that um, sometimes teachers have the tendency to, you know, they have a lot to cover, so they got to speed up, and then they just kind of dump out the content. And uh, the people listening to them just kind of go, oh, and they can't absorb it. So I'm not going to try to speed up. And uh, we'll just go as far as we can get. And hopefully something can be a blessing to you all. Well, is this thing ready to roll? There, it just came. We're good to go. All right. so tonight we are thinking about how God's story lights the way. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. We'll talk more about how the story is light. But first we want to do some review. And uh, I I felt the other night like I threw a whole bunch of uh, information at you fast and I didn't really give you a chance to interact with it or ask questions or ask for clarification. So I am going to... Just pause in a moment, and uh, if you have a question um, that you'd like to ask, or if you have observed something that you'd like to point out and enrich everybody else, that would be great, okay? So we'll get there in a moment. So, uh, Scripture is primarily a, everybody fill in the blank, story, all right. Now, I was just listening to somebody speak this morning, and they said, Scripture is more than a story, I was like, oh, okay, maybe I should uh, edit my statement there. Um, I think what he meant when he said it this morning, when he said Scripture is more than a story, I think he meant it's not on the level of other stories. Does that make sense? So Scripture is a story. But remember earlier, I said it's the truest story. It's the truest story. It's the realest story. I don't know, maybe I'm not using proper uh, grammar and saying those things, but every other story fits into the biblical story. It is the truest story. So, in a sense, it's more than a story. We said, as people of the story, our mandate is to make it known. And, uh, you know, sometimes as teachers, we teach, and then if the students don't learn it, we say, well, it's their fault. But um, teachers often say, it's our job to cause them to learn. It's our job to cause students to learn. It's our job to teach in such a way, to arrange our lessons in such a way, that students learn, whether they want to or not. And so our job is to make the story known to the next generation by arranging life in such a way that they learn the story. And we said Deuteronomy 6 talks about that, gives us three words, um, signs, symbols, and surroundings. We organize all of life so the story is part of it. Um, Asaph gave us three outcomes in Psalm 78. They start with C. Can you give me one? Confidence. Okay, confidence. We want a generation of people that are confident. We're not talking about self-confidence. We're not talking about arrogance. We're talking about people that have a calm kind of confidence. That's courageous. A second word. Okay. Okay. Let's do that one first. God consciousness. Yeah. People that see life with God as the backdrop. And uh, they, they are allowing the truth of the story to be a part of their reality in the present. And then the third C word that you said was commitment. They're committed. They have a will to obey, a will to do the right thing, a resolve to take up the cross and follow Christ. What happens when people try to tear... Um, what happens, when, oh, what happens when we try to tear ourselves out of God's story? Um, I'd like you to go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And I want to show you what happens. And so we're just doing some review and introductory stuff here before we get into our topic tonight. Romans chapter 1. I'm going to start reading of verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. They have the story in unrighteousness. They know the story even though they're living in unrighteousness. Verse 19. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. They professed themselves to be wise. Okay. They professed themselves to be wise. And they became fools. And the Greek word there for fool is the same word that we translate into English as a moron. So they professed themselves to be wise. Now, how did this work? Well, essentially, uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your what? Yeah, don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And so these people, instead of trusting in the Lord, they leaned on their own understanding. They professed themselves to be wise. And they listened to their own wisdom, their own counsel, rather than the biblical story. And they became fools. Verse 23, and here's what happens. When you pull yourself out of God's story and try to just turn your back on it, and say, I'm going to create my own answers for life. I'm not going to allow the biblical story to shine its light on my world. I'm just going gonna, gonna to totally turn my back on that, live my own life, my own story, create an altered uh, story, an alternative story. This is what happens. Verse 23, and they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. And the birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. They started worshiping creeping things. They started worshiping creation. And so when people tear themselves out of God's story, the first thing that happens is that the creation is elevated over the creator. And you see this happening. You see it happening uh, in the world around us. And if you're not careful, you see the tendency within yourself. Because this is what we tend to do. We tend to look to other people and things rather than the Lord God. And we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Verse 24, wherefore God gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Verse 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie. So we had a true story, and now they came up with a lie. We live in a world that's come up with all kinds of other stories. If you think about it, a lot of religions have a story they tell that tries to give explanations for life, for the way things are. Um, It's a lie. It's not true. Christianity, the biblical story, is true. So they created a lie, and they worshiped and served a creature more than a creator who is blessed. Blessed. And so in verse 26, for this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. God gave them up unto vile affections. And you read these verses and it talks about these vile affections and how it was against nature. It wasn't natural. In verse 28, it says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, They didn't want God to be part of their present day reality. They didn't want to bring God to bear on situations that they encountered. They didn't want the truth of God's word to be part of their decision making and their their processing of life. They didn't want to retain God in their knowledge. And so the second uh, thing that happens is this God consciousness was lost. And this deals with identity, People no longer view themselves in relation to God. They lose themselves. And so we live in a world today that's very lost. People um, have lost their identity. And uh, one of the proofs of this is um, all the books that are written on meaning and purpose. Have you noticed? Like the bestsellers deal with meaning and purpose. And it's predictable. It's very predictable. If you would write a book on, you know, the 10 secrets to finding meaning or purpose in life, I'm sure you'd sell it. Because people are looking for meaning and purpose. People are lost. They've lost their identity because they pulled themselves out of God's story. And then the third thing is this increased confusion. This increased confusion, which I also call complexity. Complexity. And uh, it wasn't supposed to be this way. You know, we sit around talking about problems today, and I'm thinking in terms of uh, pop issues in our world, um, issues dealing with sexuality and things like that. And what's happening is that as we talk about these issues, they're actually very complex, they're not that simple. How did we get here? Well, a lot of it's because of all the confusion. There's so much confusion, confusion and spinning of things, twisting of things, and so many things that are against what's natural. And all of a sudden, we have all kinds of situations that are kind of confusing and complex. It wasn't supposed to be like this. All right. One more Uh, Two more slides of review, and then I'm going to park for a moment and allow you to uh, ask any questions or make any comments that you have. So let's just review. We said that every great story has an introduction, and uh, the key word here is, I just gave it to you, creation. And uh, so the Bible starts here in Genesis 1 and 2, introduces us to the uh, characters, and then what happens? What happens next? I gave you a word. Okay, there's a crash, that's right. So um, every good story has a conflict, and the Bible does too. There's a crash. And uh, all of humanity, uh, it was actually a cosmic crash. It didn't just affect mankind, it affected all of creation. And so all of creation is left groaning. Um, And then we have this rise in action that takes place. And uh, in Genesis 3.15, God promised what? He promised a savior, a deliverer. That was the first promise. And with that first promise, from there on, the story begins to move towards this deliverer, a person. And there's this increased, what? Give me a word. Increased. Expectation. Yes. Increased expectation. And you can just sense it. And I had a teacher that said once, he said, you can just sense it if you were imagine that you were a Jew reading Genesis and you get to the first genealogy, you know, and you read it. It's like, is it him? And what does it say? He lived 950 years and he died. Well, not him. Maybe the next one. And he died. And he died. And he died. And it just keeps going like that through these genealogies. And we're waiting. When's this deliverer going to come? So the expectation is going up. So not only is the story moving towards a person, it's also moving towards a, starts with a C. Okay, it's moving towards a climax, but it's moving towards a person and this is formed in the person. You are. Yeah, a cross. I'm before the cross yet. It's moving towards, I'm looking for the word community. It's moving towards a community of people that are formed in that person. And that's us. Okay? God had that in mind. And so we have the first climax, the cross, uh, Christ. And then I'm calling it the second climax. And just so you know, um, I'm not sure that this is right. I keep changing my ideas and opinions. So five years from now, this chart might look a little different, but... Um, Hopefully you're okay with that. So and then we have this second climax, the crowning, and then uh, the epilogue or the closing. Starts in paradise and ends in paradise. And so I just love that story of Simeon at the temple. Jesus is eight days old. And uh, there Simeon stands and he holds this baby in his hands. And Simeon understands that this is what it's all about. He mine eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. It's a person. And sometimes we treat Christianity like it's an event to experience. Sometimes we treat Christianity like it's a set of steps that we need to do. Christianity is about a person that we need to know. All right. Two more questions. And then uh, at the center of the story is, hey, everybody say it. I've just been reviewing this. At the center of a story is a person. That's right. And the entire story is moving towards a person and a divine community formed in the person. Very good. All right. So, um, questions, comments, things that you think need to be clarified before we go on? Anyone? Anyone? Okay. All right. We'll go on. All right. So, Harry Blamiers uh, was a student of C.S. Lewis. And uh, he said this in 19... Well, he published a book called The Christian Mind in 1963. And so, I imagine he actually wrote this before that. But at any rate, it was about that time he wrote, There is no longer a Christian mind. Now, when you read that, you're like... What does he mean by that? There's no longer a Christian mind? Does he mean there's no longer Christians that exist? I don't think so. Does he mean that Christians no longer have minds? What does he mean when he says there's no longer a Christian mind? Well, if you go on to read the book, it seems to me that he is arguing that Christians, while they profess Christ, they profess their, to put their faith in Jesus and to embrace following Christ as a, as a way of life, when it actually comes to thinking, to processing decisions and seeing life and coming up with solutions for the problems that we have, when it's all said and done, they're actually no different than the world. And so he says, there's no longer a Christian mind. Um, we want to think about that tonight. C.S. Lewis, his teacher said this. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. I love that quote. By it, I see everything else. That's what we want to think about tonight. How the story lights the way. Now, you all know that sunshine changes everything. You get up in the morning and you look out your window, you're not even looking into the sun. You might not even be consciously thinking about the sun. And yet, the sun changes what you see. We are Christians and we embrace the story of God. And as we live our lives and confront our problems and situations as we go about our day, we're not always even consciously thinking about the story. It's not like we're intentionally gazing into the sun. And yet, it changes how we see everything else. It changes the way we evaluate the situations and process them. So let's think about this. The big question we want to answer is, how does God's story change the way I see? How does it change the way I see? I want to give you three things. It changes the way I process life. It changes the way I see people. And it changes the way I see particulars. And I'll explain those three as we go. So the first one, it changes how we process life. Now I have a couple students here. And uh, I'm going to pop a chart up here that they should see as familiar. And uh, this is a chart that I have found to be very helpful. I call it a model. Now models always break down somewhere. They're not perfect. But I feel that models are helpful for just processing and thinking about ideas. So here's a model. I'm gonna take you through it. Oh, before I pop this up here. This is not original with me. It comes from a man named Oz Guinness. Now, I don't know if you've read any Oz Guinness's material. But Os Guinness wrote a book a number of years ago called uh, Dining with the Devil. And it's a book that was basically written in reaction to the movement of churches wanting to be relevant. And so he wrote this book and he, he has this paragraph in the book where he says, too many people fail to notice shifts in thinking. They fail to notice when reasoning makes shifts. They just don't even notice it. And so I took that paragraph uh, with the help of another friend and put it into a chart or a model um, that I think is helpful to me, and I hope it can be helpful to you. I tell my students this is the most important model that I ever teach them, and uh, I like to teach this everywhere I go, so I'm giving it to you tonight. This will help you process Everything you encounter from books on parenting to grandparenting to raising vegetables in your garden, I suppose. Okay, so there's three levels. The first one is objective reality. And what we mean by objective reality is things we see. These are referring to characteristics, symptoms, et cetera. They're statements about the way things are. So when people talk, you want to pay attention to what they're saying. And sometimes they're making what I call objective statements, objective it's part of objective reality this is typically stuff that we don't argue about Um, now maybe maybe it could be debated but typically speaking no matter who we are what background we come from we just generally don't argue about it pretty much no matter where you come from in the world if you look up at the sky and the sun is out we much all agree we say there's the sun Okay, so there is, there the, there's the sun, that is an objective statement. Does that make sense? You follow me? There's the sun. You don't argue about it, um, we pretty much all agree. The second level is what's called descriptive reality. And in descriptive reality, we make a shift to start talking about explanations about what we see. This includes cause and effect descriptions. It answers questions about why. So if I say there's a sun, and that sun is up there because there's a creator who put it there, now I just made a shift. The sun is there because I just shifted to what's called descriptive reality. Now it's a very subtle shift. Again, most people hardly notice or don't pay attention to it. And yet it's so important. Because while I might agree with lots of people about the fact that there's a sun out there, uh, somebody might disagree with me about why it's there or how it got there. And so we need to pay attention to these shifts. Now, the third level is what we call prescriptive reality. And this deals with our problems or our solutions I sometimes call them the fixes, the things, the, the solutions, the prescriptions, the fixes to the problems in our world and in our lives. Now, here's the thing. Prescriptions flow from what? Where do prescriptions come from? Which line of reasoning? They come from the descriptions. Descriptions. If your description is wrong, your prescription will be wrong. And so what happens is if you go to the doctor and you're displaying symptoms and you present these symptoms to the doctor and, and uh, he says, well, I think that you just have the flu. and He's describing. That's description. And he says a couple days of rest is what you need to fix you up. That's prescription. But if you don't have the flu and something else is going on, then the prescription might not work. The solution might not work. Now, this is actually simple. It's not that complicated. Maybe you're already ahead of me. The reason this is important is because when it comes to objective reality, we agree with much of the world about what we see. And we can read books, and we, we read things, and we agree with what we see. People do research and studies, and they say, we're noticing a trend here. And we're like, yes, you're right, there's a trend there. We've got a problem. But where we begin to part ways is at the level of the description. And when people start saying things like, we just need to build people up more. People need to feel better about themselves. That's a, dis- that's a prescription, isn't it? But see, we never stop to think about the description that it's flowing out of. Society does not corrupt. Environment does not corrupt. People corrupt the environment. People were not born good. People are born fallen. And if we allow God's story to be the description for what we're seeing in the world, then our solutions flow out of it and they work. Does this make sense? And so to think Christianly, to have a Christian mind is to use the biblical story to provide our explanations and descriptions for why we see what we see in the world. Now this takes practice and maybe the way I'm explaining it makes it sound simpler than what it is. But the more we read God's word, we allow it to be Uh, directive into what we're dealing with it will help us um, process this. Now um, I just, this is important and I just want to park here for a moment. Does anybody have any questions about this? Or does anything need to be clarified? So Again, maybe this just works for me. Maybe you don't find it helpful. But for me, I use this kind of language in books I read. So in the margins, I'm making notes. Like sometimes I'll write descriptive, prescriptive. And I'm writing these notes to myself so I can, oh yeah, I know what's going on here. Because again, sometimes I'm reading and uh, it sounds real good at this level. And then I say, wait a minute. Why is he saying this? And I go back and I start reevaluating his explanation and his description. I say, no, no, this isn't right. This isn't right. Okay. So maybe I'll step into some deep water here, but I'll take the chance. So a number of years ago, there was this man uh, that has drastically influenced secular psychology named Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud came up with this idea that there is deep within us these hidden desires, or not hidden desires, but there's these unconscious desires within us that are fighting to get to the surface. And you don't know what they are because they're unconscious. And so, again, it's a pretty complicated system, but this was his idea. And so he created all kinds of prescriptions, Hypnosis, dream analysis, free association. He created all these things to trick the unconscious into allowing these desires to come to the surface. Unfortunately, some Christians have just bought into some of these things. And they say, oh, that sounds good. That sounds good. That, that, that prescription works. I know somebody else that tried it. They had, it worked for them. You know, it's gonna work, it's good. And they just buy into this without saying, wait a minute, do you have an unconscious? Do you even have an unconscious? And sometimes I ask students this and they're like, yeah, I think I do, I think I do. But Freud described an unconscious as this part of us That's not aware. It's a part of our being that is not aware. And so, and it, 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 there's, that's where most of what happens in us takes place. And yet, if we have one, you can't prove it. And the Bible does not talk about it. That I'm aware of. So that's an example why we have to be careful with some of these things. Okay, you sure you don't have any questions or comments? That is exactly why modern psychology, and I, I say modern or secular psychology, is dangerous because it's operating on a different set of premises. And it's leaning on man's wisdom rather than God's wisdom. That isn't to say that we disagree with modern psychology on this level. Do you follow me? That's because sometimes I'm reading stuff and I'm like, this is good. This is good research. It's good stuff here. They're observing something that's true. We agree. But it's in the description where we part ways. Does that make sense? All right. The second thing um, that the light, changes is the way I see people now this is there's many ways in which it changes the way we see people I'm just going to give you a couple okay Um, people are fallen the biblical story tells us that people are fallen and that's not popular today Um, people want to believe that deep down inside everybody is good and sometimes as parents we want to believe our children are good and we have a hard time believing that our children would do that. they do that. I can't believe that. You know, we're just shocked. Why? Um, they're fallen. We're fallen people. We live in a fallen world. And uh, it was Anne Frank in her diary that wrote um, at one point, and I'm not quoting, quoting this exactly, but After dealing with the Holocaust and all the things that she processed, she said, I still believe that deep down inside people are good. And there's something within us that wants to believe people are good. And again, secular psychology really promotes this idea. We're fallen. And we need to accept this as a reality. We live in a fallen world. People are fallen. And... um, Fallen people corrupt society, um, not the other way around. The second thing is that they have a fallen consciousness. Now, um, I don't know if anybody recognizes the name Walter Brueggemann. Um He was a very popular theologian back in maybe the 60s and 70s. I think it was in the 70s, he wrote that it is the task of the church to engage in what's called prophetic um, ministry. And in doing prophetic ministry, he wasn't talking about something charismatic, but he was talking about proclaiming truth. Prophetic in the sense that you're proclaiming truth. And he said that it is a task of the church to engage in prophetic ministry, um, to create um, an alternative I don't want to say consciousness, but almost, I forget the exact words he used, but it had this idea that the world is telling a different story. And part of the church's job is to tell the true story, to call people back to thinking about life the way they should think about it. That's our job. And so we have a fall in consciousness. Our children don't by nature think about God or include God in their daily living. We don't. We don't. Okay. But we need to, um, learn how to do this. And, and it happens as we grow in our relationship with the Lord. Okay. The third thing we see about people is that self-interest complicates interactions between people. And right now in a class at school, we've been talking about this, how self-interest complicates everything. And, um, Specifically, right now, we're talking about how self-interest complicates dating and marriage. Because if you're like me, um, most of us do not pursue uh, dating and marriage um, with the most godly intentions. We're kind of selfish, aren't we? We're just selfish people. And if we're honest, a lot of our decisions, a lot of our encounters and interactions with people are motivated by our desire to get what we want. In fact, go in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I saw this some time ago, and uh, I just got excited about it because it seems so clear, it seems so obvious. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. You should circle this verse if you don't have a conviction against writing in your Bible. And they, I'm sorry, and that he died for all. That they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Why did Christ die on the cross? So we'd stop living for ourselves. The gospel is about turning us from these people that are so inward focused to turning us out. So we're supposed to stop living to ourselves. That's what the gospel's about. And that implies what? Apart from Christ, we live to ourselves. We're creatures that are dominated by self-interest. And uh, we need to realize this our children, uh, our interactions with other people, and what we need to do as we allow the story to shine its light on our lives, we need to become more and more conscious of the fact that, oh yeah, we're all a bunch of selfish creatures being motivated by selfish uh, self-interest and it complicates our interactions because you have two self-interested people interacting and what does James 4 verse 1 say? You have war. And so, that's what wars, if you look at them, uh, the conflicts between people, two miniature pe- or people, you have a miniature war, okay? So, the fourth thing we see is that people are, I call them human black holes, and I don't know if you're familiar with black holes, uh, these things out in space, they say they have intense gravitational pull, and so, um, anything that gets close, it just sucks them in stars or whatever it is. It just sucks it in. And you and I, because we're fallen, because in Genesis 3, death took place. And as Romans 5 says, that death was passed upon all of humanity. Because of that death, we are left as creatures that are thirsty. And, and we're just searching. We're searching to be fulfilled. We're like these dark black holes. And I sometimes tell students, it's like we have this radar that's going beep, 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 beep. beep and we're looking to for anybody or anything that's going to meet our needs. And so we, we become a users and abusers. We become users and abusers. And we use people and things to meet our needs. And uh, this is the reality. And so what I'm saying is, is this, the biblical story talks about these things and what we need to do is allow the biblical story to shine its light onto this because these things change the way I view people, the way I view myself and the way I view conflicts and problems. It changes the way I see the particulars and you're like what do you mean by particulars? Well what I we mean by particulars is those small little pieces of the puzzle. Remember those little pieces of the puzzle? I put a picture up there that was a that was a long time ago, wasn't it? Those little pieces, they're particulars. And in school, we talk about particulars. In science class, you know, you talk about a particular thing. In math, you talk about particulars. Well, um, the biblical story changes how I see all of that. It's not just a bunch of random information. It's not about a bunch of just random information. And so, um, Sartre said he was a philosopher of sorts. Uh, Back in the day, he said, without an infinite reference point, all finite points are absurd. Without an infinite reference point, all finite points are absurd. And what he was saying is, is if there isn't something that brings unity to all of this, then math, science, history, and all of our studies in school—they're all pointless. It's a waste of time. It's the biblical story that brings it all together. They all take have or they all have meaning in the biblical story. And Douglas Wilson, uh, in his book, uh, Lost tools of learning, I think it was, he said, apart from God's story, the universe is a fragment pile of incomprehensible particulars. It's just incomprehensible, pointless, but the biblical story brings it all together and it has meaning. And so we need to get our children excited about this when they're studying science, when they're studying history, when they're studying God's world. It's God's world. And it's part of God's revelation to us. And he made us to work and worship in his world. And the more we begin to realize that everything comes together in him, the heavens declare the glory of God and his creation is declaring his praises. The more we begin to comprehend that, the healthier we'll be. All right. I'm going to stop. Are there any questions or comments? Okay. Well, uh, we're done for tonight. I just want to thank you for your attention. Uh, Again, thank you for having us. And uh, uh, there's so much more that we could talk about. We just kind of scratched the surface in some of this stuff. Um, But I hope that something I shared could at least be helpful to you or encourage you to, if nothing else, read God's story and meditate in it and, um, And then start to live it. So, thank you.